Hello, and welcome back to Texas Tech Health Check from Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center. I'm your host, Melissa Whitfield. Cystic fibrosis, also known as CF, is a genetic disorder that causes problems with breathing and digestion and affects about 35,000 people in the United States. Dr. Adobe Kainu, Pediatric Pulmonology CF Center Director, is our guest for this episode. Dr. Kainu tells us who is at risk for being diagnosed with CF, how treatments have improved in the past few years, helping patients to avoid hospitalization, and what you can do to help friends or loved ones with CF. Dr. Kainu, welcome to our podcast. Hi, good afternoon, Melissa. It's wonderful to speak to you and to our audience today. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself, your expertise, and what you do here at the Health Sciences Center? Yes, so I am a pediatric pulmonologist. I am board certified in both pediatric pulmonary and general pediatrics, and I work for the Department of Pediatrics. I'm an associate professor, and I'm in the Division of Pediatric Pulmonary, and we have a cystic fibrosis center, so I'll go back and say I treat children with lung diseases. Most commonly, it's those that have very severe, uncontrolled asthma. But we also have a nationally recognized cystic fibrosis center here at Texas Tech. Well, speaking of cystic fibrosis, what is cystic fibrosis? How common is it and what causes it? So cystic fibrosis, it involves different body parts, although the lungs are its primary serious organ affected, but it's a genetic condition that an individual is born with in which they have a genetic abnormality of a protein called the cystic fibrosis transmembrane regulator protein. And I always have to say it slow because if I say it fast, I trip over the words, but people initialize it and call it CFTR. And so think about it as a transporter on the surface of your body's cells. So the cells of your airway, the cells of your liver, the cells of your gut has this transporter that sits on top of the cell. And that transporter is responsible for bringing chloride into and out of the cell. And it also indirectly regulates the transport of sodium into and out of the cell. And so when someone has a genetic abnormality of this cystic fibrosis transmembrane regulator protein, you have abnormal transport of salt. So salt is made of sodium and chloride. Although that channel or transporter primarily affects movement of chloride into and out of the cell, it also affects the movement of sodium. And so In summary, there is an abnormality of salt transport into and out of the cell. And when that happens, you don't have adequate fluid in that lining of the organ. So think about the airway. So your airway has to have adequate fluid to make the mucus flow better. But when you have altered transport of salt into and out of the cell, then that makes the fluid in that airway less. And now the mucus is a lot more thick. So 
you have very thick mucus. And this also affects other organ systems where you have thickness of mucus in the sinus, in the lungs, in the digestive system. For instance, the pancreas, which is responsible for digesting food. In the colon, which is responsible for moving stool out of the body. In the biliary tract, which it plays a role in keeping the liver disease-free. And also it affects the amount of sweat that you lose on the skin. And so those types of things are affected in a disease with cystic fibrosis because of the genetic defect. So who is most vulnerable or at risk to develop cystic fibrosis? Is it genetic? It is genetic. And the way that this uh, genetic disease is transmitted is both parents. So you have mother, father, biologically mother and father. Father carries the mutation for the cystic fibrosis gene. The mother carries the other mutation. And the child has to have the genetic abnormality from both mother and father. So it's what we call an autosomal response excessive transmission of the gene in which the child must have the cystic fibrosis abnormality from the mother and from the father. And so when the child has both those gene defects, then the child has cystic fibrosis. So what are the symptoms? So most commonly, you may see a child early, less than two years of age, who has failure to gain weight. So we call this term failure to thrive, where a child is not growing optimally at their growth curve, especially with regard to their weight. And this is because they're not able to digest fat, carbohydrate, and protein because of that disease. You can also see the child have chronic coughing with mucus congestion because of the thick airway mucus with recurrent bronchitis or pneumonia. When the child is born, about 20% of newborns with cystic fibrosis will have problems having an initial bowel movement in the first 48 hours of life. So when that type of condition happens, and it's called meconium ileus, it is certain, you know, that cystic fibrosis is a cause in that infant stage. And as the child goes on with their cystic fibrosis disease, lung disease becomes a big issue. And I think if you remember, I mentioned about how the mucus in the airway is a lot more thick and difficult to cough up, clear. And so because of that, you have a lot of mucus congestion, which obstructs or blocks the airway. You have increased inflammation, and then you also have infection. And so because of that, the the individual's in a vicious cycle of recurrent infection. And over time, that damages the airway and lung so that prior to our newer treatments, you would expect someone to have lung failure by their 20s or 30s and require a lung transplant. And then also with respect to their gut, they don't have good digestion of fat, carbohydrate, and protein. And so nutrition becomes a big issue where they continue to have growth failure. And, and it becomes, they, they require a large amount of calories for optimized growth. So what are the treatments and is it fatal? So 
Cystic fibrosis is a condition that reduces life expectancy. So we go all the way back to the 1950s. If a child lived to elementary school age and then passed away, that would be expected. And they would die of lung failure because of their recurrent infections and damage to the lung. Now, because of the newer treatments, which I'll get into, patients are now living into their late 40s, early 50s based on the newest data. The treatments that are used for cystic fibrosis are several fold. The first involves lung treatment. And so the first part of lung treatment is infection control. There's a certain bacteria called Pseudomonas aeruginosa, which plays a role in increasing inflammation and injury to the lung. And so there are inhaled antibiotics that one can use to decrease the amount of that particular bacteria in the airway and lungs of patients with cystic fibrosis. And then the other one has to do with mucus clearance or breaking up mucus. And so we have treatments called Dornase Alpha, which break down mucus. We have treatments such as hypertonic saline. It's a high salt solution that can be inhaled. Both agents are inhaled. They both make the mucus less viscous and thick. We also have an agent called Bronchitol. It's a powdered inhaled agent that also helps to make the mucus less thick. And then patients will have to do regular what we call chest physiotherapy. And what chest physiotherapy is, it is a principle that allows for loosening of the mucus. It's a mechanical device or a mechanical treatment. You can use the hand when you cup the hand to clap the patient's chest. You can use a vest that is filled with compressed air that will vibrate at a certain frequency and pressure. You can also use a positive exhaled pressure device that will also help in mobilizing uh, the secretions. Then we also have anti-inflammatory agents. So one that had been studied and shown to be effective in patients, younger patients, actually in reducing the decline of lung function is actually ibuprofen. And so this was a study that came out years ago showing effectiveness at reducing the rate of lung decline. However, this was found to only be effective in our younger patients, those under 18. And the downside of ibuprofen, of course, are side effects with regard to the gut and kidney. And so not a lot of centers use this, although there are some ongoing studies on anti-inflammatory agents, but there are none at this moment that are FDA approved. Our most exciting treatment for the lungs is something called CFTR modulators. If you remember at the beginning of this, I mentioned that there was a genetic defect in the cystic fibrosis transmembrane regulator gene that affects the production of that transporter uh, protein. Well, these medications work not Genetic. It's not a genetic cure, but it works on the channel itself. So it works to increase the stability and production of that protein and also helps to allow better transport of chloride into and out of the cell. And so this, these particular medications, the first one came out in 2015, and the most recent one was FDA approved in 2019. And so these agents have really been responsible for 
increasing the life expectancy of our patients, increasing lung function. In fact, since these agents have come out, not as many patients have had to be hospitalized as before. And we're seeing this all across CF centers in the U.S. and around the world. Then, of course, you have your nutrition. They have to take something called pancreatic enzymes. And so these are pills that are taken by mouth before eating. And they have digestive enzymes that help to break down the fat, carbohydrate, and protein for good growth. Very complex regimen. So I I know you mentioned all these wonderful treatments or new modern treatments, but a term just came to my mind, iron lungs, something from the 50s, I guess. Was that something that was used to treat back then? So, you know, this, when we think about an iron lung, this is more of an external ventilation device. And, And the therapy close to that that would be used for Our previous end-stage patient would be what we call non-invasive positive pressure ventilation. And so we would use devices like bi-level positive airway pressure or BiPAP, where the patient would have to wear a mask on their face and the device would allow the person to inspire and expire with appropriate pressure. And this is when the patient was toward the end of their life. This is when the patient needs a lung transplant because their lungs are not able to ventilate and oxygenate well. And so we would use something akin, if you think about an iron lung, you think about this non-invasive ventilation. But now with these newer therapies, I have to tell you, I don't have any patients. It's amazing. On any type of ventilation support. At this time, I'm knock on wood. Um. (laughs) Well, anyone who has to keep up with children knows how difficult it is to keep up with everything that comes along with children that you need to carry (laughs) when you go anywhere with them. So how does it affect their health? I mean, children are just everywhere. (laughs) Yeah. And and this is a very scary thing for parents. I remember when I did my fellowship, this was in Houston, and we had diagnosed a little girl with cystic fibrosis. She had what we call failure to thrive or failure to gain weight, and she would have this chronic mucousy cough, and the diagnostic test was done, and she was found to have cystic fibrosis, and we had to sit down with the mother and you know, tell the mother in the hospital what was going on with her child, and... I'll never forget when I told, when we told the mother, the mother immediately started to cry. And I said, you know, I know this is difficult. What, 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 um, what is, what is your concern? And she said, my, my child's going to die before me. That was her, that was the first thought as she, you know, just broke down because, you know, at that time, if a patient lived into their thirties or forties, you know, that it was like a miracle at that time when I did my fellowship. And so when when one would deliver that news of cystic fibrosis, I think that it, it, that is the worry of the parent. They automatically know that their child's life expectancy will be short. So that's the first thing is them having to adjust their expectation of what that child may be able to accomplish in a relatively shortened period of time. And that's their first fear. And then each time that patient would either get hospitalized or they would visit 
and their their lung function test was decreased from the last visit, I think that would be a knife piercing into the parent's heart because their first thing is, uh oh, is this how is this how this is gonna happen? Is this is this the start of the decline? And so that I think that's something that always sticks with me. And then also I'll never forget when I was where I, I had worked before there was a young lady who, she was only 21, had a boyfriend, had gone to Italy to meet his family, you know, just full of life and hopes and dreams. And she had an illness that required hospitalization. Unfortunately, the course of her illness had rapidly declined. And it was at a time where lung transplant was prioritized differently. It was on a first come first serve. It wasn't based on priority. And so we knew that she wasn't going to be able to get a lung transplant based on her need because other people were in line before her. And so we knew we had to take her to the ICU and we talked about intubation with her and the father and the high likelihood that she would not be able to survive. And she looked at her father and said, Daddy, do something. And the poor father was like, I can't. And that, I'll never forget that because I was like, oh my gosh, this poor dad. You know, you want to, as a parent, you want to protect your children. And at that moment, he could not do anything. But I am so happy to say that since newer therapies, these newer therapies have been developed, this has reduced the need for transplant. When they looked at five-year data, five to six-year data from these med- these newer medications, they found that there was a reduction in the need for transplant. And we're also seeing lung function higher than in the past, patients living longer. And so I'm, I'm happy to say now that when I tell patient or tell families that their child has CF, it's done with optimism. It wasn't with gloom like it was when I did my fellowship or where I used to work, you know. Now it's with optimism. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that I've seen that, you know, throughout my practice, you know, going from delivery of news with 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 sadness and and consolation and now saying, you know, you are blessed to be born at this time with what's available. Absolutely. Yeah. Mhm. So what can we do if a loved one has cystic fibrosis? Well, if a loved one has cystic fibrosis, and the, the first thing they should do, of course, is come to our cystic fibrosis center because the patient has to be seen at a cystic fibrosis foundation accredited center. And if one goes on C as in Charlie, F as in Frank, F as in Frank.org, that's cysticfibrosisfoundation.org, they have a registry of all the recognized um, cystic fibrosis centers. So that's the first thing. Find out where your nearest cystic fibrosis center is. Make sure the individual is being seen at a Cystic Fibrosis Foundation accredited center. The second one also is to go on that same website where they have validated information on cystic fibrosis. I don't recommend going on, no offense, Wikipedia. (laughs) Sorry, Wikipedia. Um, Sorry, Google. (laughs) But Cystic Fibrosis Foundation 
has medical experts that validate the their information and you know the information is accurate and up to date. And so if one wishes to educate themselves on what cystic fibrosis is, they can go to that website. The other thing I would do is become involved in fundraising. We have our Great Strides Walk every year. In fact, we're having one on May 20th. Registration's at eight, the walk is at nine. And so that's also a way be aware of fundraising. The Cystic Fibrosis Foundation is very good at investing a lot into, you know, research. And and I've seen that happen. I've seen that from the time I was in fellowship to now with the medications that have come on board and looking at their drug pipeline. They are very serious about finding treatment for everybody. And then the other one is advocacy. So, you know, sometimes healthcare access can be an issue for families. Some are underfunded, some have high deductibles, and medication therapy can be expensive. And so advocacy includes, you know, being aware of healthcare bills that are being passed in your local government and advocating for adequate healthcare coverage so that patients don't have to decide, uh, you know, am I going to heat my house? Or am I going to be healthy? Am I going to live under a bridge? <laughs> or do I get my medications, you know? So I think that's, that's very important. Is this gene something that we can test for? It is, as a matter of fact. So I'm going to go back and talk about the diagnosis for cystic fibrosis. So the diagnosis is having what we call a positive or elevated sweat test. And so this is a specific test where they stimulate your skin to sweat, and then they look at the concentration of chloride, which is part of salt. So you're basically looking to see if the salt is elevated. And so if the salt or the the amount of chloride is very high, then that suggests that the person does have cystic fibrosis. Then you have to do blood testing to confirm two genetic mutations. And so many labs can do that genetic test to confirm the diagnosis. I guess I'm wondering if I don't have cystic fibrosis, but how would I know if that recessive gene is in me? That's a good question. So for women that are, you know, in that reproductive age and are, you know, oh, I'm planning a family, if they go to their OBGYN, there is a panel. So typically, the OBGYN guidelines recommends testing pregnant women for certain diseases and cystic fibrosis is one of those. So they're not necessarily testing them for cystic fibrosis, they're looking to see if they carry the gene. And then if the woman carries it, they will, of course, test their significant other. But as an individual, because of the way in which the gene is passed, I think the first thing one would have to do is go back into their family history and think, was there someone in the family that was always having a hard time gaining weight, no matter what they did? Did that same person always have bronchitis or pneumonia? Did that person pass away earlier than expected from pneumonia? So that might be the first clue in the family history that there may be a member there with cystic fibrosis. And I think the next thing you would do is go to your physician and ask, you know, can I, can I have genetic testing? And the way that genetic testing is done is 
Typically, you have a panel of cystic fibrosis mutations that are common to a specific population. And it can be 30 or 60 of the most common cystic fibrosis mutations that you would test for. You have to be careful in the interpretation because cystic fibrosis, the mutation rate is higher in Caucasians of Northern European descent. So if the individual being tested is not Caucasian of Northern European descent, they may have the more rare mutations. And so you may, one may have to increase the number of mutations included in that panel or do the interpretation with a grain of salt. Because I was pregnant 25 years ago or whatever. So it's been a long time and I don't remember if they said anything about that or not. And I would imagine, so the the gene mutation was known for cystic fibrosis around 1989, 1990. And routine testing, routine genetic testing wasn't done until I'm going to say the 90s, you know, in, in, well into the 90s. And so it's, you know, it's possible that at that time they were doing it, but not as routinely. Right. Yeah. Not as routinely. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Well, is there anything else that you'd like to add? Well, I do want to let listeners know to go to cysticfibrosisfoundation.org to educate oneself more on cystic fibrosis. They have a lot of great information. Also, um, you know, support fundraising efforts because the foundation is a big advocate of treatment of all patients with cystic fibrosis. And to also become involved in advocacy because that not only affects cystic fibrosis patients, it also affects other patients with chronic diseases. Great. Well, I'm so glad that you came on to talk to us about cystic fibrosis. Thank you very much, Melissa. Thanks for listening to Texas Tech Health Check. Make sure to subscribe or follow wherever you listen to podcasts. This information is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice. Always seek immediate medical advice from your physician or your healthcare provider for questions regarding your health or medical condition. Texas Tech Health Check is brought to you by Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center and produced by Tierra Castillo, Susanna Cisneros, Mark Hendricks, Tyler White, Kay Williams, and me, Melissa Whitfield.